Today we are beginning a brand new series called Take the Lead. If you were at our prayer and worship night this last Wednesday, you heard me talk a little bit about it. But at this time, before I jump in, I would like to welcome our Maui campus. Can we welcome everybody watching in Maui? Love you guys so much. And we're excited that you're joining us for this series, Take the Lead. Take the Lead. Um, one of my favorite movies ever is the movie that came out a few years ago called Ford Versus Ferrari. Anybody seen that movie, Ford versus Ferrari? It's just one of those like feel good, adrenaline pumping movies that you just sit on the edge of your seat and you're just like, yeah, I, I love Mustangs for some reason. I, I love Ford for some reason. And I don't even really love Ford, but I, it's just an amazing movie. My favorite part of any racing movie, whether it's cars that are racing, whether it's the cartoon cars, whether it's horse racing. We saw a movie recently called um, five, I was five guys in a boat or five. What is it called? Five guys in a burger. Okay, so um, the five, whatever it is, boys in a boat, not even five guys. There's like eight of them. I'm, I'm hungry already. Okay, so I just want five guys. Boys in the boat, but any racing movie that's out there, my favorite part, you, you know how it's going. They're, they're not gonna make a whole movie about the last moment, the guy losing the race. So you know where this is going. At the very end of Ford versus Ferrari, um, Ken Miles, who's the driver of this brand new Carroll Shelby vehicle, which would eventually become the very first Cobra Mustang. When you're looking at this car and all this, I mean, it is racing the Ferrari, they, the whole movie, they're trying to engineer this car to beat Ferrari. Finally, in the 24-hour Daytona race, Ken Miles on the very last lap, he's like three cars behind, one of the Ferraris is ahead of him, and he decides, he's talking to himself in his mind, and it's time to take the lead. He revs the RPMs, he slams the gas pedal down, the red it's going past the red line on the RPMs, your heart is pounding, and Ken Miles, the driver, passes all of the cars, goes through the finish line, the checkered flag, and Ford beats Ferrari. It's an amazing movie. But in that movie, what I love about racing is there's a time in every race where you have to decide, where we have to decide, where the racers have to decide, am I going to, in this moment, finally step up and take the lead? That's what this series is about. Looking at every generation, every age group, teenagers, young adults, senior adults, middle-aged adults, there is no people group that is exempt from the call of God on our lives to be leaders in a world that needs leadership. Do you agree with that today? We are called to be leaders. And I know some people are saying, but yes, but also we're called to be servants. We are, but the highest call of leadership is servanthood. But this is a sermon series about rising up and becoming the people that God has called us to be in leadership, in high schools, in middle schools, in our jobs, in our workplaces, in our classes and on our teams. We have to understand the call to lead. For whatever time we have left on earth, we have to take the lead. And we have to make a commitment to finish well. I love 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 7. The Apostle Paul is writing, he says, my life is being given as an offering to God, and the time has come for me to leave this life. It's towards the end of his life. And he says, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul is a master teacher and communicator in using metaphors, but he uses this image of a race at the end of his life. I fought the good fight, but I finished the race. 
I took the lead in my life. I took the lead when God called me to lead. I refused to only follow. There is a call to follow well, but there is also a call to lead well. And the apostle Paul says the call is to finish the race. But what does it actually mean to lead, especially in the Christian context? What does it mean? John Maxwell, the famous leadership um, author and consultant and one of the greatest leadership minds ever said this, leadership is influence, nothing more and nothing less. Leadership is influence, nothing more and nothing left, uh, nothing less. As we grow in leadership, we have to grow as change agents. That's the call everywhere we go. If we're growing in leadership, people and things change everywhere we go. If I'm a leader, I change things. If I'm not a leader, things and people change me. That's why when he says leadership is influence, that's the proof that you're a leader, that where you go, you are influencing and not only being influenced. I think almost every day as we talk to our teenagers, as they're going into schools or our grandkids, even our elementary age students and middle school students, college students that are here today, every time you walk into your school, you have to have the mindset of why would I ever allow people that I will not know in five to 10 years dictate the trajectory of my life and influence me why won't I go in and be the leader and be the one who influences and not always be the one who changes everywhere I go? It's a call to leadership. As we grow in leadership, we are growing as change agents. Ephesians 5, 8 through 11 and verse 14, the apostle Paul is writing again and confirms what Jesus says with a call to be a light in this world. And he says this in verse eight, in the past you were full of darkness, but now you are full of light in the Lord. So live like children who belong to the light. This light produces every kind of goodness, right living and truth. Try to learn what pleases the Lord. Have no part in the things that, that people in darkness do, which produce nothing good. Instead, tell everyone how wrong those things are. Everything is made clear by the light. This is why we say, wake up. You who are sleeping, rise from death, and the light of Christ will shine on you. What the Apostle Paul is saying, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. The world is not for you. Teenager, the world is not for you. It's not built for you to succeed. It is not for you. It's not on your side. But the God of the universe who took the time to breathe you into existence is on your side. And he is for you. And he is calling us to wake up and to be the light of the world. Think about the responsibility. Jesus himself, he called himself the light of the world. And then he commissions us to be the light of the world. What he's saying is, Jesus is saying, I'm the light. And when you have me, you're the light. Light changes darkness. Light changes darkness. So today we're called to be transformational leaders. And that's the title of my sermon today, The Transformational Leader. How can we do this in a Christian context? Yes, I believe leadership can be in a church context, obviously. I'm in leadership in a church context. But these sermons over the next few weeks are not about how to only make you a better leader in church. 
It goes far beyond that. This is about how to be a leader as the church everywhere you go in your life. How do you lead? How do you lead at work, in your job, as an employee, as a manager, as a CEO, as a student, in a way that's attractive to people that don't know God, but also at the same time on mission for God? So today I wanna look quickly at four characteristics of a transformational leader. And we're gonna be looking at the story of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Nehemiah. Um, I'm gonna be reading a lot of scripture today, so bear with me. I'm kind of going against some of my rules on how many scriptures to read at one time. So you're gonna have to just sit on your hands and you know just try to pay attention. But I wanna set up this story. Nehemiah comes right after uh, the book of Ezra, The Israelites in the Old Testament have been in Babylonian captivity. Now they're in Persian captivity because the Persian Empire rose after the Babylonian Empire. Next will be the Greek Empire. But at this time, the walls of Jerusalem had been burnt down, torn down through all of the wars and fighting over the last several hundred years as all of the the people of God have just been in uh, transit and all these different places in captivity. Nehemiah at this time is not a priest. He never was. He's not in full-time ministry. He's not a prophet. He has no official religious office at all. He's a layman, which just means he has a normal job like most all of you and just a faithful follower of God. He's a Jewish man. But he's also the cupbearer of the king, Artaxerxes, of the Persian Empire. One day, some of his friends come from Jerusalem to the Persian Empire and tell him the state and condition of Jerusalem. The walls are torn down, we're defenseless. Surrounding areas and surrounding nations and communities are, are mocking us and making fun of us. We, we are the laughing stock of the entire region of Judah. Nehemiah is burdened about this, and he's the cupbearer to the king. And this is a story about how God uses someone who is not in full time ministry to do something so great and mighty that it changes the course of Israel's destiny. So four characteristics of a transformational leader. Number one is this, transformational leaders actualize a vision. I hope that this sermon series is one of those where you're taking notes, and even if you don't have a journal or a pen, you pull out your your phone, and I'm just gonna trust you today that you're not texting. I I mean, you do what you want, you're adults. But But I'm just gonna pretend, if you have your phone out, everyone's taking notes and you're just loving the message. So number one, actualize a vision. What do I mean by that? Let's read in the story, Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4, and 10 through 11. This is a first-person memoir, this book of the Bible. This is the account of what Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, accomplished. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, uh, was emperor of Persia. I, Nehemiah, was in Susa, the capital city. Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived from Judah with another group, I, and I asked him, about Jerusalem and about the other Jews who had returned from exile in Babylonia. They told me that those who had survived and were back in the homeland were in great difficulty and that the foreigners who lived nearby looked down on them. They also told me that the walls of Jerusalem were still broken down and that the gates had not been restored since the time they were burned. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. Verse 10, a few verses later, he's praying and he says, Lord, these are your servants your own people. You rescued them by your great power and strength. Listen now to my prayer and to the prayers of other servants who want to honor you. 
Give me success today and make the emperor, King Artaxerxes, merciful to me. So now what's happening? A vision is simply something that you see a problem and immediately you see yourself, even if you don't know the path, there's something that rises up in you to know I am either the solution or a part of the solution to the problem that is in this moment burdening me. So Nehemiah feels this burden for, the, for Jerusalem, the people of God who are in trouble. And then he says, God, something's rising up in me. I'm made for more than being the cupbearer. What are you calling me to be, to be and what are you calling me to do? A vision is beginning to actualize in the heart and mind of Nehemiah. What is a vision? A vision is a clear mental picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. Vision is a clear mental picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. When we think about a vision for our lives, we've gotta be careful because it's not about coming up with a good idea and asking God to bless it. That's not the vision for your life. It might be a plan for your life and God could end up blessing a plan. But the vision of your life, even if it's for a season right now, it's the something, it's the reason you get up every morning. It's the purpose, it's your why. A vision cannot be birthed in man. A vision has to be birthed in God, given to man. It, we honor God by saying yes to the vision he gives us, and oftentimes they're presented to us as a problem. But if we're not ready to receive the vision from God and actualize it in our lives, we view the problem as something someone else should fix, and we'll complain about the problem. We'll try to vote the problem away. We'll try to decide the problem away. We'll try to move the problem away. But the problem was given, most likely, because we are a part of the solution. One of the most difficult aspects of leadership is discerning between good ideas and God ideas. A God-ordained idea will be in line with what God is up to in the world, confirmed by Scripture. It will be tied to his master plan in some way. A vision from God is not, I'm called to be a doctor. I'm called to be a business person. I'm called to be, those are your occupations. Those are assignments. A vision from God. Never in this story does Nehemiah say, God called me to be a cupbearer. To be a cupbearer to the king is my vision. He saw the assignment that God gave him as a moment and a place of leverage for the vision that God had given him, presented to him as a problem. What are the problems that God is presenting to you that we might be looking over or pushing to the side to someone else, but God is telling you purpose is found in your yes to that. Purpose and destiny is found in rising up and saying, I'm going to be a leader called by God, empowered by God everywhere I go. And not only does vision accomplish things for the sake of God wanting to partner with us and the betterment of a community and a city and a family, but it also is for your benefit to actualize a vision. When it comes to a sense of actualizing this God-given vision in us, when we do it, it will bring four things into our daily lives. 
So vision brings quickly, number one, passion. Almost every single person I talk to lately, when you say, how are you doing? They'll go, good, I'm tired, Ugh. We might say good, and we might say God is good, but you go one layer deeper, most people are lacking passion right now. We're, we're lacking that emotion. Emotion's not a bad thing, by the way, in church and in Christianity. Passion is emotion. And vision evokes emotion. The excitement of when your feet hit the floor in the morning, I have a why for my day. I know what I'm here for. I'm not existing to have a career and existing to get to retirement and existing to die and existing to leave money to my family. Those are good, but I exist for something that will transcend my life. I exist for something that is more than money and that is more than just a good legacy when it comes to my name being good in people's minds. I'm called to lead, and I'm called to have passion and purpose in my day. The second thing that vision brings is motivation. What I'm seeing in this next generation, I believe Gen Z and even Gen Alpha after Gen Z are two of the smartest, most brilliant, most capable generations that the world has ever seen, if not the most. But there's one thing that's lacking, motivation. And the reason why is the world is telling both of these generations you will find your why, not in God, but in what we say you will find your purpose and why in. You will find your why in sexuality. You will find your why in the right person that you marry, falling in love and living happily ever after. You will find your why in getting a degree. You will find your why in all these other things, which can be good, some of them, but they just aren't the thing that will give us our why and produce a motivation, a godly motivation in our lives that keeps our hearts pure and motivated toward a common goal of finishing the race that God has called me to finish. If you want motivation in your life, lean into the vision that God has for you. If you find someone who lacks motivation, I'll show you someone who lacks vision. Number three, Vision brings direction. Here's another big thing with so many people are lacking. Vision sets a direction for our lives, simplifying our decision-making. The other two things that this young generation are dealing with, and it's not just a Christian perspective, it's a secular perspective as well. They're dealing with decision fatigue because through social media and the growing online presence, there are so many decisions coming at them at a faster pace, younger than what any of us had to go through they're, they're experiencing this, the weight of decision fatigue because they don't wanna miss an opportunity. So what's happening is they're shutting down and they're not having a clear goal and, and clear um, picture of what they're, where they're going in their lives, a clear vision because they don't have direction. But vision prioritizes our values and helps us determine what is most important. Vision says, I don't go to a college in another city because the college accepted me but I find a life-giving church that will keep my faith strong in a city that I happen to love a university in, and I will not go to a city. I have talked parents through this for decades now, two decades. Do not let your high schooler graduate and go to a city and say yes to a college, get accepted to a college, 
and make a decision to go there until you have securely found a family of God in the church that they can serve in, attend in, and grow in. Because if you send them to college without a church family, without connection to the house of God, we are sending our kids to the wolves. It's just a fact. Number four, vision brings us purpose. I've said this multiple times already. It brings you your why. We have to remember this. Vision is a clear mental picture, again, of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. Okay, are you guys still with me today? You're like, man, I was hoping for a little bit more of like a happy, you know, it is happy. (laughs) Guys, it is happy. I'm happy and I love you. But this is serious. It's serious stuff. And I'm telling you, it's time to take the lead. Number two, transformational leaders develop foresight. I love this part of the story in Nehemiah. Transformational leaders develop foresight. When Nehemiah first heard about the condition of Jerusalem, there wasn't one thing he could do to help the situation. I want you to think about this. He was the cupbearer to the king. That's not a, that's not a, I mean, it's, you have access to the king, but you're the guy who tastes the wine and the food, and if it's poison, you die. So you're, you're, you're the guy that has the life that's expendable. Like, okay, well, hey, the, the wine's good today, and there's, if there's one day where the wine's bad, you're dead. So that's Nehemiah. There wasn't one thing about his current situation that he could do anything about the condition of Jerusalem. He was in the wrong place. Many of us can identify with this. To do anything about it, he was in the wrong place. He had the wrong job, working for the wrong guy, and he couldn't change any of that. None of it. And he wasn't free whatsoever to act on the vision that was being actualized in him. And this is where most people go, I know what God's called me to do. But poor me, I can't do anything about it. This is what the best news is ever. You are not unique. That is the story of every single person without exception that gets a call and a clear vision from God. We are placed in a position, working for a person, maybe in a city, in a financial situation, where we can do nothing about what God has called us to do and we know where it's headed, why would God give you a God-sized vision if you could accomplish it with your current situation? He would never do that because we would never give God glory. We would be the ones thinking that I did it and I am God's gift to God. We just would because we're humans. But God leaves us in this situation for a season. Sometimes it's a long season. Sometimes it's shorter, but he puts us in a waiting season for a purpose, and it's to develop foresight. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. Bear with me on this again. Stick with me. It's eight verses. One day, four months later. That's important. Four months after the guys first came and said, Jerusalem's walls are falling down. Four months of agony. This sounds long, but it's very short compared to Moses' 40 years. So basically what the Bible tells us is your waiting season will be between four months and 40 years. So I guess we can pray for the four-month side. When the king Artaxerxes was dining, I took the wine to him. He had never seen me look sad before, so he asked, why are you looking so sad? You aren't sick, so it must be that you're unhappy. I was startled and answered. That shows us that they didn't have a pretty close relationship. 
I was startled and answered, may your majesty live forever. How can I, how, how can I keep from looking sad when the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asked, what is it that you want? I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I asked the king, if your majesty is pleased with me and is willing to grant my request, let me go to the land of Judah, to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild the city. There's the vision, okay? There's the vision, but we're about to go into the foresight of how the vision came to pass. What was he doing for four months? Was he wasting the four months? What was he doing? Verse six, then the king with the queen sitting at his side approved my request. He asked me how long I would be gone and when I would return and I told him. Then, this is, this is, this is the crazy part. Then I asked him to grant me the favor of giving me letters to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates, instructing them to let me travel to Judah. I asked also for a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal forest, instructing him to supply, to supply me with timber for the gates of the fort that, the guards, that guards the temple and for the city walls and for also, by the way, I want lumber for my house that I'm gonna build, okay? The king gave me all I asked for because God was with me. The king gave me all that I asked for. This is mind-blowing. This is an unbelievable point to remember in your leadership growth in your life and how we can depend on God. Nehemiah made a conscious decision to be productive in the season in which most people become inactive. That's the bottom line. When you're waiting, you can choose in the waiting season to waste the waiting season, or you can choose to be watchful in the waiting season. Foresight. What would have happened if Nehemiah on that day, the scripture read, he went to the king four months later, the king asked him what was wrong, and he went, well, the, the city is, is in ruins, and the king said, what are you gonna do about it? Well, I don't know, I'm gonna pray about it. What would have happened to the story? God would have moved from Nehemiah to someone who had foresight. The reason why the walls eventually are rebuilt isn't because God gave Nehemiah a vision. It's because Nehemiah did not waste the waiting. So many people, I've been there, waiting seasons can feel long. We can waste them or we can be watchful in them. So what do we do in waiting seasons? We develop a plan through foresight. So let me ask you this. Assuming you had all the resources to accomplish maybe the vision in your life, the thing that you've just, you know, you felt for a long time, but there's never a good time, there's never a good year. Assuming you had all the resources to accomplish your vision, what would you do right now? What would be your plan? What would you do? Over the years, I've had opportunities to talk to a lot of pastors in conference settings on a larger scale, roundtable settings on a smaller scale, one-on-one, -on -one, a lot of pastors. And this, this is what you know. It's a good thing for pastors to want their church to grow if it's healthy growth because people are getting saved and people are being discipled. It's a good thing. Every pastor wants their church to grow, but the fact is, I think it's over 90% of churches in America, it's not just that they're not growing, they're declining. And so this is the main question that I'll ask people, whether it's youth ministry, kids ministry, or a senior pastor over their whole church, I'll say this. This is the simple question. I'll, I'll pretend you guys are pastors and apply it to your own life. I'll say, let's pretend that God gave you today all the people that you have been praying for God to give you in your church, the whole neighborhood and community. 
If God just said, I'm bringing them all today, could he trust you with what, he's at, what you're asking him to give you? If you don't count the seats in an auditorium, is there a place for them to grow and be discipled, loved, and ministered to? Do you have the small group system set up? Do you have the next step process done? And that's for pastors, that's my context. But let me ask you, if God gave you everything you're asking him for, what's your plan? What's your structure? What are your goals? Have you been wasting the season or have you been watchful in the season? So assuming you had all the resources, you had all the time, all the money, what would you do today? Sometimes it can feel like making a plan for something that doesn't exist yet can feel a little bit odd. It, especially if it's something that feels borderline impossible. But I wanna look really quickly at Nehemiah's plan and then we'll go to number three. Here was Nehemiah's plan that he made, apparently, in his waiting season. Step one, this is him talking. Convince the king to allow me to leave his service to rebuild the wall of a city, which in years past posed a threat to this king's very kingdom. Step two, convince the king to lend financial support to the building project. Can you imagine him sitting in his room going, this is stupid. <laughs> Step three, secure letters from the king to the governors of the surrounding areas, asking them to provide me, the cupbearer, with the safe conduct, conduct along the way. Step four, work out a deal with Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, to secure enough lumber to build the city gates and a home for me, because why not? Step five, ask the king for a title of governor of Judah. Step six, organize and equip the inhabitants of Jerusalem. People I've never known. Here's this guy coming from the outside. All right, guys. It's time to rebuild the walls. Who are you? They had grown with a victim mentality. And here's someone that's calling it out of them. It's time to rebuild the walls. That's gotta be huge on his shoulders. And number seven, step seven, begin construction. That's what he's thinking about in the waiting season. And it probably felt ridiculous. But remember in that passage, when the king asked him what he wanted, he prayed very quickly, probably under his breath. And then... The king did it, and then Nehemiah tells us why. Because God apparently was with me. This is the thing. Very rarely, when you're taking faith steps and risks, can you feel the presence of God with you in the present like you can the presence of God in hindsight, looking back on that moment you had to take a step of faith. In that moment, Nehemiah probably didn't feel like God was with him, but after the king said yes to everything, he's going, apparently, God was with me. And if it's a God-given vision, it's the same for you as it was Nehemiah. God is with you. Do you guys believe that today? God is with you. Number three is this. Transformational leaders persevere through opposition. There's so many. This, this story is crazy. I, please go read this. It's amazing. The leadership that can come out of this, the leadership truths. There's so many directions I could have gone. This one's an important one, though. Persevere through opposition. So finally, Nehemiah does all those things he said he was going to do. He gets to Jerusalem, and they're starting to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 17. Again, this is 17 verses. Sit on your hands if you need to. Here we go. When Sanballat, one of the, one of the opposers, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was very angry, even furious. He made fun of the Jewish people. He said to his friends and those in, with power in Samaria, what are these weak Jews doing? 
Well, they rebuild the wall. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was next to Sanballat, said, if a fox climbed on the stone wall they are building, it would break down. You can imagine them laughing. But Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people from Ashdod were very angry when they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem walls were continuing and that the holes in the wall were being closed. So they all made plans to come to Jerusalem and fight and stir up trouble. But when we, but we prayed to our God and appointed guards to watch for them day and night. And our enemies said, the Jews won't know or see anything until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Like this is violent. This isn't like, Somebody says something bad about you on Facebook. This is, they're coming to fight and destroy and kill, right? This, this, is, this is deep. So I put people behind the lowest places of the wall, the open places, and I put families together with swords, spears, and bows. Then I looked around and stood up and said to the leaders and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and powerful. For your brothers, your sons, Fight for your brothers, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. From that day on, half my people worked on the wall. The other half was ready with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers stood in the back of the people of Judah who were building the wall. They did their work. Get this, this is the mental image I want you to get. They did their work with one hand, shovel, some kind of tool, and carried a weapon in the other hand. It's such an amazing mental image of the work that we do for God. There's always going to be a fight against you when you're doing something for God. It's not a fight against people. It's a fight against the forces which are driving people. This is simply how we as Christians can overcome feeling any kind of hate for people because it's demonstrated all through scripture. It's not the people who are coming against you. The people have allowed openings in their lives for the enemy to operate through them to come to you to tear down what God is trying to build. And then he says, we're gonna fight in one hand, but keep your head down and work. I watch so many people, whether it's through politics, through different arenas in life, what happens is this, we put down the tool and we only carry the weapon and we make the new objective fighting people who disagree with me rather than build what God is calling you to build. With one hand I've got a weapon and with one hand I have a tool and I'm going to build what God has called me to build. We have to be aware of the spiritual battle that's taking place while never neglecting the physical task that God is calling us to do. What does Nehemiah show us in the story about how to respond to criticism? Just a few thoughts and then we'll go to the last point. The first is this, take up the fight only when necessary. Fighting cannot be the point of what we're doing when the fight comes to us. Never once do they verbally defend themselves. Never once, never once in the story does Nehemiah stop working to come over here to these guys and go, yeah, you know what, what really is happening? You don't even know, never one time. He just says, guys, don't listen. Take up the sword, take up your tool, and keep working, and just look over your shoulder. We will only defend ourselves if we have to. We will only fight 
if we have to, because we cannot be distracted from the work that God has called us to do. So many people, especially through the pandemic, were pushing me and our church to just jump right into the ring of politics and to just start fighting in politics. I have definite opinions about politics, but I'm not gonna say them up here. They wanted us to take up the sword and abandon the work. But the work is never in scripture be political. The work is build the church. But here's the thing, ready? Be involved in politics because how did Nehemiah build the wall? How did Daniel become a wise man? They leveraged the position and the person and authority politically to accomplish what God had called them to do. But never in the story did it become their identity or the point to what they were doing. They leveraged it for the work. It never became the work. You guys following me with that? Okay, next, real quick. Understand, how do we respond to criticism? We have to understand that some criticism is valid. Several of the things that these guys were saying, if I was Nehemiah, I'd be like, hey, if a fox, hey, they're like, if a fox climbs on that wall, it's gonna crumble. Nehemiah was probably like, they're not wrong. You know, like, I mean, but we're working on it, you know? Like, there's still holes all in that wall. It's kind of true, but we're working on it. Sometimes what we can't do, especially young generation, but it's every generation, what we can't do is when criticism comes, dismiss every single bit of it. What you have to do is stop and go, what's true? How can I grow and get better? But what's false? And what do I need to dismiss? Thirdly, on this point, we have to work the vision without ceasing. I've already talked about that. And fourthly, remember the God factor. Never once does Nehemiah let the people forget we're rebuilding the walls of a city that will carry the bloodline of our Savior. We're rebuilding the walls of a city that one day Jesus will ride into on a donkey. He will die on a cross for our sins. He will return one day in glory and reign forever on the throne in the city we are rebuilding the walls of. There is a God factor behind every God vision that he gives in our lives. And number four, main points, transformational leaders pray and fast. Transformational leaders pray and fast. What's so amazing about the story is this. All of these amazing things that end up happening, they rebuild the walls. It's fortified in 52 days. Crazy. God factor. Story is amazing. But rewind. How did all of this actually start? God factor. But before Nehemiah did anything, tucked away in Nehemiah 1 in verse 4, right after he receives the news about Jerusalem, it says this. Nehemiah 1.4. Now, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. But he didn't stop there. It says, and I began fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He began fasting and praying. After that, in chapter one, it, it just goes into detail about what his prayer is. It's a beautiful prayer that a lot of people overlook, and I think it's amazing for people to dive into and look at that. But he fasts and prays. He's fasting and praying. And then doors that cannot, they are impossible. The doors that open are impossible to open according to man's standards. The king of Persia should have never allowed a Jewish man to rebuild the walls of a city that at one time came against them. He should have never given him the title of governor. He should have never given him the things he asked for. But he did because later on, Jesus would actually teach us that some things 
only come through prayer and what? Fasting. Some things. There are certain demons, Jesus says, that only come out with prayer and fasting. There are certain miracles. Because what is prayer and fasting? Prayer is my closeness with God. Fasting is putting my flesh into submission and getting my mind more aware of seeing what God wants me to see. We have to go into a season of praying and fasting to ever see what God is actually calling us to do. Prayer doesn't force God's hand, but it keeps us on on the lookout for his intervention. Prayer doesn't force God's hand. He doesn't work for us. But prayer absolutely gets God's attention, and it more makes us aware of his intervention when he chooses to intervene. I wonder how many times we didn't see We didn't see his intervention because we didn't have the spiritual eyes to see it. He was answering our prayers, but our flesh was in the way. What does prayer do? Prayer keeps us looking. Prayer keeps the burden fresh. Prayer keeps our eyes and hearts in an expectant mode. Prayer sensitizes us to subtle changes in the landscape of our circumstances. Prayer ensures we won't miss opportunities God brings our way. I don't know about you, but in 2024, this is gonna be the year I miss no God opportunities. I'm not gonna miss God opportunities. That's why we start off the year with praying and fasting. We're starting today as a church collectively, 14 days of prayer and fasting. This is not something we do every year because it's like this religious, oh, it's the beginning of the year, we're just gonna do this. No, this is war, spiritual war. This is, I'm drawing a line in the sand and I'm gonna do this with my church family, but I'm doing this for me and my personal family. I'm gonna pray and believe for things that are impossible, for doors to open that I looked at before the prayer and fasting that were impossible. And I'm gonna believe what Jesus said, that some things, only come through praying and fasting. Every single day, we're offering a different prayer objective that we'll be posting on social media and sending out information for. But I challenge you, fast something. You can look up online, the Daniel fast. We have different ways of fasting and and different ways of equipping you with suggestions on fasting on our website. If you have any questions at all, come find one of us, our serve team members. We would love to talk to you about it. Fasting has to be be between you and God. But praying is just a biblical mandate. They both are. But what you fast is between you and God. We're also giving out wristbands, reminding us to pray because some things only come through praying and fasting. There's one more important aspect of Nehemiah's prayer that I wanna close with, which is this. He didn't pray, if you notice in this prayer when you read it, he didn't pray to rebuild, for God to rebuild the wall. Never once did he say, God, just rebuild this wall. Never once. What he does pray is, God, provide an opportunity for me to rebuild the wall. Oftentimes, what we do is we dismiss responsibility by saying we're praying about it. Prayer is powerful. But oftentimes, our prayer shouldn't be, God, you do everything. Maybe it should be, God, do everything I can't but give me opportunity. I wanna be a part. I I wanna partner with you. I'm not expecting you to rebuild the wall, God, but I am. I wanna be a part of what you're doing. That's why he chooses to partner with us. 
to build the church among all people everywhere. And this is the difference between a leader and a dreamer. Dreamers dream about things being different. Leaders envision themselves making a difference. Nehemiah was a man with a vision, not a dream. He wasn't expecting God to do something independent from him. He was expecting God to do something through him. God wants to do something through you, not only something for you. It's time to move from dreaming to leading. It's time to move from dreaming to leading. In a few weeks, the first weekend of February, February 1st through the 3rd, we're having our rally conference that we do every single year. And this is our next step application for this message. So we have our rally conference and, and it's amazing. We're bringing in guest speakers. And if you've never been, you need to come. It's like our beginning of the year revival. It started as a revival. But over the course of the last few years, it started evolving and growing because pastors from all over the country started coming. But then people in our own church started saying, well, it's great that we're doing things for, for pastors and full-time ministry, but what, what about opportunities for, for leadership, growth, and development for lay people like Nehemiah that work in, in the world and go to school in the world? They're not in full-time ministry, but how can we grow as Christian leaders? So this year, it keeps on evolving. I wanna show you a picture of the three components of the rally so you can get this, and this will all be on social media and the websites, uh, website. The, we have rally nights. So this is these three things are the rally. Rally nights are Thursday night and Friday night. Okay, it's free. Rally Z is Saturday night. It's for all next-gen ministry, which youth and young adults. Last year, there were over 800 teenagers and young adults here. It was amazing. And then Rally Lead is the brand new aspect of the rally that we're starting this year. And if you guys could, uh, let's go to Rally Nights real quick, and I wanna show you the guest speakers. These are our guest speakers for Rally Nights, JJ Vasquez, Mark Francie. I've talked a little bit about them. Amazing pastors, church leaders, um, and these are the guys that are gonna be preaching on Thursday and Friday night. You want to be here, it's going to be amazing. Our Rally Z speaker is what we believe one of the greatest next generation preachers and minds in our country. He's the, uh, the next gen pastor at Fellowship Church in Grapevine, Texas. He'll be preaching on Saturday night. All night stuff is free admission, free. But we're also starting Rally Lead. Rally Lead is Mark and JJ will be coming and doing main sessions. Brad Lominick is a leadership consultant for the church and for the business world. He led the largest leadership conference in America, in America for 10 years, um, between I think 2004 and 2014. The largest uh, leadership conference in America. He's coming, it's amazing, and he's gonna be teaching. John McKenzie, um, who is an amazing pastor in, in Frisco, Texas, Tyrone Jones, and many more. So what we're doing in these breakout sessions during the day, Rally Lead begins on Thursday afternoon, We'll be giving you guys all this information. But also it goes into Friday morning. And Rally Lead, what we're asking our church, we're asking people, if you're serious about growing in leadership, we would love for you to register for our Rally Lead sessions. All of, our, all of the speakers have already been talked to and instructed that there are going to be people here that are pastors and church leaders, but also school teachers, business people, doctors, teenagers. And so every session is going to be about leadership from a Christian perspective, not just from a full-time ministry perspective. We would love for you guys to put this on your calendar and to make this a part of the application and next step for this message today. And we believe that God is gonna do something great at the rally. Are you guys excited for everything coming up and that God is doing? I wanna pray over you real quick and then we'll um, do, give you a couple of really important closing announcements. God, I pray that this today will be the beginning of a new era of leadership in our church, in our personal lives, and in our families. God, I pray for all of those that may not know you, Jesus, today. 
that we would come to surrender our lives to you, give our lives to you, Jesus, and recognize what you've done on the cross for us, but also recognizing that you've called us to be leaders. We're moving from dreamers to leaders. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.